Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. Paul's joy. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us, of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you for that reading. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, your word, and we thank you for, you know, uh, this conflict that we've been looking at for, uh, I guess, a few months now between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians, because, uh, you know, through it, uh, we've learned a, a lot of things, and uh, one of the things that we have learned is, um, uh, even beyond just this conflict, uh, how gracious you are, uh, the wonders of this ministry of reconciliation, how you use broken and weak people uh, to bring forth this gospel message. And I guess in, in line with that, um, today even, you continue to use weak vessels, and uh, it's um, through this weak vessel that you bring your word. So I pray, God, that your power would be made manifest in, uh, in weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are still in this series on Second Corinthians, and we, we're kind of getting to the end of uh, one of the sections in Second Corinthians, and so what I've decided is, I think this is after today's sermon, uh, it's probably a good spot to take a break from uh, this letter, and because next month is Easter, uh, I'm going to do like a short series related to Easter next month, and I don't know about you, but 
I could use a break from this letter <laughs> and do something new. And so the plan will be to, to come back to 2 Corinthians back in May. <clears throat> uh, we've been saying Paul has been giving this defense of his ministry. And, you know, simultaneously, because he's defending his ministry, what he also has to do is he has to correct what is wrong with the Corinthian church. And uh, if you remember... Um, you know, last week we've talked, we talked about how their values were not aligned with Paul's values, which ultimately meant that their values were not aligned with God's values. And, you know, there's a, there's, because of that, there was a lot of things that uh, was dysfunctional about this church. And some of it you read in the previous, in 1 Corinthians, um, where they struggle with things like factions and division and people are suing one another and there's sexual immorality, even of a kind that is not tolerated amongst the pagans. Uh, but after 1 Corinthians, there was actually another letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, right, between 1 and 2 Corinthians. We don't have access to that letter, but that letter is known as the severe letter from commentators because that letter is the letter that seems to have grieved the Corinthians pretty deeply. And that's, that's the letter that um, Paul's talking about in this passage. And I've often thought about parenting as this kind of dance that you do with your kids where there are times where you have to be pretty stern with them and you have to correct them and you have to discipline them um, when they're respectful or when they're, you know, um, violent and hitting people or when they don't respect authority or when they lie, right? Those kind of things. Uh, the parent's job is you have to correct some of these things. Uh, and sometimes that correction is going to feel pretty painful to the child, and they may even cry as a result of that discipline. This happened actually to me <laughs> last night. I was disciplining one of my kids, and uh, you, you'll know who it is. I'm not going to say who it is, but uh, afterwards she says, Daddy, you broke my heart. <laughs> and um, actually, I didn't have that reaction. I wasn't like, oh, I was like, give me a break. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but the reason I say parenting is kind of a, a dance is because on the one hand, you, you do have to inflict some kind of pain in, in your discipline. You do grieve your child when you do correct them. But then you have to kind of do the other part of the dance where you show kindness and gentleness, right? And you give them reassurance and you remind them, you know, I, I really love you and um, I'm disciplining you uh, because, uh, because I love you. And you, you comfort your child. So it's kind of like this going back and forth, uh, one without the other, you know, which of course I did after she was like, you broke my heart. <laughs> we, were, we were having a discussion. And I was explaining to her that, um, you know, uh, these are the things that you did wrong, and it's not okay that you continue to do them, but I have to correct you. I have to discipline you because I love you, but it's okay, right? And you kind of do like that, that dance back and forth. And, you know, comfort, um, if, if you don't discipline your child, that's not good, but if you don't comfort your child, that's not good either. You, you kind of have to go back and forth and do both. Uh, as we read this section, you can tell Paul is doing this similar kind of dance because on the one hand, he was disciplining them. He was correcting them uh, because they aren't in alignment with God's values. And that was the imperative again last week where Paul tells them not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he reminds them, look, you are the temple of the living God and therefore you have to remain distinct from the world. You should not be participating in things like sexual immorality or idolatry or anything that defiles your body and your spirit. And based on what we know again from 1 Corinthians, they were pretty guilty of some of these things. At the same time, 
Paul is not set out to really crush them, to crush their spirits. He doesn't want to uh, destroy them or to make them feel so condemned that they feel like they're entirely worthless and unlovable by both God and the Apostle Paul. He wants to also encourage them and comfort them and remind them he is not trying to condemn them, but he cares deeply for them. So he says in verse 3 in our passage, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts. And so Paul, he loves this community, and he wants to see them flourish in a similar manner as a parent might want to see their own child flourish. And in any type of correction, the ideal is not necessarily that the person who is being corrected feels condemned and feels crushed and feels like they're not a good person. That's, that's, not, great, uh, that's not a great fruit uh, that's produced by discipline. Uh, if one of my children say something mean, if I correct them, I don't want them to think I'm the worst person in the entire world. On the other hand, <clears throat> I don't want them to conclude that you know, uh, the only time they can say mean things is when uh, the parent is not around. So th- the times where they can get away with it. And as long as they don't get caught and as long as they don't get in trouble, then they continue in that behavior. I don't want that either because I want their heart to change. I want them to feel bad enough that they know what they did is not good and to understand that they need a change in heart that will lead to a change in behavior. In other words, I want them to be led to a place of repentance, right? And repentance is not, again, behavior modification, but repentance ultimately uh, results or yields a change of heart and coupled with uh, this change of heart, I think what repentance also brings is that greater comfort, that greater sense of freedom, that greater sense of joy that all people long for. But as we all know, repentance is not always going to be our first or second response to our sin because repentance also means that we take the path of loss or we take the path of vulnerability, we take the path of being exposed, we take the path of weakness. And herein lies the paradox of what 2 Corinthians is teaching us here, that true spiritual power will look like weakness in this world. Uh, repentance will look like weakness in this world. But according to the, the values of the kingdom of God, that is actually the way towards spiritual power. Now, why is repentance difficult? And I think we all have a sense of what makes repentance difficult. Uh, most of us would probably recognize pride is what makes repentance difficult, and it's probably the most um, it's the greatest obstacle to our repentance. But I want to actually dissect that a little bit more because if we just say it's pride, I don't know if uh, that has any kind of explanatory power for us that will really lead us to dig a little bit deeper into the dynamics of our own hearts that wrestle with pride. Uh, You know, we've been talking about weakness and the need to embrace weakness, but the reason we struggle to embrace our weakness is because we have pride and ego. Uh, Nobody here enjoys that feeling of being weak or being exposed or even being wrong. Think about the last time you were in the wrong or you were the one who was offensive or you were the one who made a mistake. And in our hearts, I think the first thing we probably want to do is we want to deny that we did anything wrong or we want to minimize what we did wrong or we want to shift blame uh, for what we did. So even if we are wrong, uh, oftentimes this is what we do. Uh, We say, well, Uh, I know I was wrong to do this, but you did this, right? And as long as we kind of have a partner in the wrongdoing, it makes us feel less bad about what we did. 
so if you're ever in this interpersonal conflict, maybe you were condescending, maybe you offended the person, maybe it was even unintentional, but you just said something that hurt the person and uh, unintentionally hurt the person, and that person confronts you, and the, the first reaction we want to have is we want to defend ourselves, uh, we want to minimize what we said, we want to say, oh, you're just being a little too sensitive, or any of those things. And when we feel like we are in the wrong and we don't do any of those things, but we kind of just take it and say, yeah, I was completely wrong for what I did and there is no excuse for it, what that does is, again, that makes us feel kind of naked before everybody. It makes us feel exposed. It makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us feel weak, which is part of the reason why repentance or a, um, a disposition of repentance is so difficult. And there's I think two likely reasons why we don't want to feel exposed or vulnerable or weak. And the first reason is that we don't want people to know the truth about who we really are. I think we are afraid that if people know all the, the recesses of our hearts, all the places where we are messed up, where we are weak, uh, I think we're afraid that people will think less of us or reject us. And uh, that's, that's related to the sense of shame we might feel. I think, though, the other reason maybe we don't want to feel exposed is sometimes we might even be afraid to confront the truth about ourselves, right, to ourselves. We, we don't want to know uh, all the things that are down deep in there. That's why uh, when you, if you ever go to, like, counseling or therapy and you have to kind of expose those things, that can be a painful process. I think uh, the human heart sometimes wants to deny those things and doesn't want to confront the truth about who we are. Uh, one of the things that Romans 1 shows us is that the nature of unbelief is that it suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, in other words, there are things that we ought to know uh, about who we are, like in terms of our own sin and, and the places in which we are messed up, but we might choose to live a life in denial rather than expose these things because if these things are exposed, it ends up being too painful for us. And the reason why I mentioned that part is I think the vertical dimension relates here because, you know, if we have uh, enough courage to bring these things to God, uh, I think the presumption is we ourselves are aware that we have to bring these things to God, but if we kind of live in self-denial and don't confront the truth of our, about ourselves, then uh, I don't think we actually bring them to God because we uh, fail to recognize that it's something to be brought to God in the first place. Does that make sense? Uh, now, I wonder if there is a part of us that prefers to exchange the truth about ourselves for this fantasy about ourselves, about who we want to be. And we tend to live in that fantasy of, I think I'm this kind of person. And I have seen that when people have had, and this hasn't happened very fre frequently in my life, but there's been a couple people around me uh, in like the last 20 years who've had like huge moral failings, like on an epic scale. And <coughs> it's interesting, they're always actually very surprised at themselves. Uh, they didn't expect that they were capable of such moral failing. Uh, and they find themselves kind of like on the other side, wondering who they are, because even their own view of themselves becomes shattered through that. And I s suspect these kinds of things happen because, again, there is something within us that chooses to believe we are stronger and better than we actually are. And I suspect that comes from the inability to confront the truth about ourselves and settle for this kind of superficial, painless kind of repentance that doesn't really come from a deep sense of godly grief. 
some of you, I think, are probably familiar with this uh, author because she's become very popular in, in our culture, um, Brene Brown. Uh, she gave this TED Talk, I think it's like 12 years ago now. I think it was in 2010. And this is kind of what catapulted her to like fame. Like she became well-known after this TED Talk. Uh, and I, I checked yesterday and I watched it again yesterday. 57 million views. And this is not on like YouTube or anything. This is on the TED website. 57 <laughs> million views uh, of this talk, which kind of speaks to the, uh, the way this talk resonated with so many people. But this talk is called The Power of Vulnerability. And in that talk, what she's doing is she's describing her research. She's a social worker. Uh, and then she, <coughs> I, I, you know, I think she received like academic degrees and did research. And uh, her, in her pursuit of trying to understand human connection, it led her to try to understand shame because she saw that shame was a big hindrance to actual human connection. Uh, because of shame, she finds people remain uh, disconnected and don't have real relationships that connect to other people uh, and because shame blocks that. And as she kind of, you know, she interviewed thousands of people, and so she says she, she can roughly categorize all the people that she interviewed into two categories. Uh, in one category, there are those who believe that they were worthy of love and belonging. In the other category, she says, those who didn't believe they were worthy of love and belonging. And those who believe that they were worthy of love and belonging, uh, this, this sounds obvious, but this is how she says this. She says, had love and belonging, right? And therefore, they had human connection. And she delves deeper into this category of people. Like, why are these people, like, why do they feel like they're worthy of love and belonging? And it, it turns out these people were actually able to embrace their vulnerability. That's, that's a pattern that she finds among them. She says they were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to actually be who they were in their imperfection. And what she finds is that, um, that strand or that theme amongst people is actually what created deep human connection for these categories of people. And conversely, those who lacked human connection were the ones who were unwilling to make themselves vulnerable. Uh, you know, maybe because of a deep insecurity, they, they kind of have to pretend who they are and kind of hide who they really are. And uh, they were not willing to expose certain things, certain imperfections that they didn't want others to see. And if we are able to, unable to confront the truth about ourselves, which can be very painful at times, which can cause us grief at times, it means this, that we would prefer to remain disconnected to others uh, over embrace truth. And in disconnected relationships, we can project ourselves in a certain way so that we can avoid being exposed and being vulnerable and being weak. But in the end, that leaves us as always feeling alone and feeling isolated. And the way to form genuine connections in relationship is actually, she says, to have the courage to be vulnerable and weak. Now, I don't want to focus on what she says. She's like, she's coming at it from like a social science perspective. Um, which, you know, I think there's valuable insights there, and she's looking at social relationships. But I actually thought that was a, you know, there's insight there into what it says about even our relationship with the Lord. Uh, perhaps one of the ways where we will experience genuine connection with God is when we find ourselves or when we bring ourselves to God fully exposed, fully vulnerable, and fully weak. And perhaps therein lies 
the way in which we form this deep vertical relationship with God. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is through repentance, but not a cheap kind of repentance, but a, a genuine kind of repentance. Uh, if one of the problems that we have is that we deceive ourselves with respect to the depravity of our own hearts, I think one of the gifts of Christian community is accountability because that means we have other people around us who can expose our hearts for us when we don't see what our hearts really are like, when we don't see what our behaviors and actions actually do to others. And that's what Paul is doing here for the Corinthians. Otherwise, they would continue to live in such a way that suppresses the truth about their own sin and imperfections. They would continue to live defiling the temple of the living God without any sense of spiritual consequence for such living. But when pride and ego are involved, then we don't want our hearts to be exposed. And so Paul knows this, and he has to write this severe letter that we don't have access to. And he is now wondering, how has this community responded? Right? There's no email back then. There's no text message or instantaneous response. He's writing a letter. He's sending it out. And a lot of time goes by before he hears back in terms of how this community responds to this letter. Well, the passage tells us Titus comes and gives Paul this encouraging report. And he tells Paul that, hey, in response to your letter, the Corinthians, they responded well, meaning they responded with repentance. And that's what we see in verse 8. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. And you see, Paul has to play that role of the one who causes grief because he has to play the role of kind of calling them out for the things that they're doing wrong. And while he knows they need it, and it is for their ultimate good, you can also see he doesn't feel very good about it. He knows the pain it, it's, it caused them, and he doesn't like it. And so there's a part of him that regrets it, but ultimately he doesn't regret it because it was ultimately for their good. And so God was gracious to this community because their grief led them to confront the truth about who they were and ultimately repent for their wrongdoing. Now, how do you know their repentance was sincere and this will give us insight into knowing how do we know our repentance is sincere paul he talks about two kinds of grief here godly grief and worldly grief worldly grief produces death whereas godly grief produces repentance and how do you differentiate the two uh, i think one of the ways is you see the fruit of what that kind of grief produces so look at verse 11 and Paul talks about what their grief produced. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Right? And he, he lists these things that repentance produces, or at least produced in this Corinthian community, and he begins with earnestness. And then he ends with a sense of trying to make things right. Uh, the word that's being used here and translated is the word punishment, uh, but basically what that gets at is uh, making things right, right? Seeking justice. Uh, worldly grief is probably uh, the kind of sorrow that one feels when they get exposed, but doesn't have much interest in making things right. They just want to kind of get through the storm as quickly as possible so that they don't feel the pain of being exposed uh, anymore. Godly grief feels sorrow for getting exposed, but it also wants to satisfy that requirement for justice. Uh, the last, again, the last characteristic says punishment, which is a strange word to use, but it's an indication of the importance of making, trying to make right the things that you did wrong. 
And so repentance not only produces sorrow, but it produces this earnest desire to make things right. And in the case of Paul and the Corinthians, Corinthians not only felt exposed, they not only felt sorrow and grief for their sin, but they also wanted to make things right in their strained relationship with the Apostle Paul. And their desire to do so reaffirmed Paul's own confidence in this community. And again, it's not a confidence in how amazing or good this particular community is, but it's a confidence in the power of the gospel and a confidence that this community actually has received and believes in the gospel that reaffirms um, his, his joy, his comfort, his confidence uh, as they respond in repentance. It's as if he's saying, Ah, I can be reassured that God really is at work in this community because they repented. I can be reassured that the gospel really is powerful, that they really have received it because it led them to repentance. Now, one of, I think, the great examples of repentance is found in Luke 19 uh, in the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, If you're not familiar with that story, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Uh, He was a chief tax collector, and if you read the passage, Luke makes sure to tell us Zacchaeus was a rich (laughs) chief tax collector. And it wasn't that he was rich that was the problem here, but uh, if you know anything about the uh, tax collectors at the time, he was a Jewish person. He was working for the Romans who were um, the authorities that oppressed the Jewish people and uh, exploited them and through taxation, one of the means. And so this Jewish person would collect taxes from his own people, but not just simply collect taxes, but oftentimes what they would do is they would collect even more taxes so that they could pocket some of the money, which is probably why Zacchaeus is rich here. Uh, So they were like very despised people um, from the perspective of the Jewish people of the time. Now Jesus comes, and what Zacchaeus does is he he climbs a tree, and he, he tries to see Jesus, and he calls down to Jesus from that tree, and Jesus sees him, right? And then what ends up happening is Jesus uh, ends up being a guest of Zacchaeus. And I think he, right, he kind of goes into his home and eats with him, although that's not said explicitly, but uh, you kind of imply that. And everybody's grumbling, kind of saying, what is Jesus doing with this most despised person in the community? And after Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, he repents. Now, the interesting thing is Luke doesn't tell us he repents. It doesn't actually say, like, oh, Zacchaeus repents. But we can say that he repents. Why? Uh, We know that he repents because what Zacchaeus does say to Jesus is this. Behold, Lord, and half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And you kind of, again, see that response of repentance where he wants to make things right. Uh, And so we also see in that story, it, it points out that Zacchaeus also has joy after his encounter with Jesus. He's about to lose a lot of his wealth, and yet he has joy. Why? I think this is the other part of repentance. Repentance is supposed to lead to joy. Repentance created through fellowship or creates fellowship with Jesus, creates this genuine connection with Jesus, and that ultimately is what gives joy, the kind of joy that even a wealthy life cannot provide. And see, the paradox of the Christian life is that the way to get what our hearts actually long for, what I would say is the, are the spiritual benefits of the gospel, things like joy and comfort and peace and security, freedom, a sense of belonging, a sense of connection, all of those things come to us, how? By way of weakness, by being exposed through grief, through vulnerability, through repentance. 
you know, when we have our time of confession in liturgy, I think one of the things we try to remind ourselves is this is not a time to necessarily um, feel condemned and to stay there, right? Maybe temporarily feel condemned, but it's not a time that is meant to ultimately bring us down. But we have this time of confession so that, because we know that it is the path towards freedom, right? It's a path towards joy. Uh, it, it leads us to remembering what Jesus accomplished for us, and it allows us to come to God as we are in our sin, in all the ways in which we are messed up, and to experience what it is to be received, to be accepted, to be forgiven. But to get there, you have to go through this process of repentance. You have to humble yourself. You have to be okay with being exposed. You have to conf confront the truth about yourself, about your heart, and you have to bring these things to God. And as we do, I think God creates this meaningful connection between uh, him and us. And that's where we experience spiritual power. And that's why weakness and vulnerability and all these things that we want to avoid, that's why it equates power. Not because we ourselves become powerful in and of ourselves, but because we get connected to a God who is powerful and demonstrates his power through us and in us. Uh, we are going to have communion uh, today in just a moment. And again, it's, it's one of those moments in our liturgy where we can spend some time examining our hearts and really reflecting upon our relationship with the Lord. And, uh, you know, maybe some questions that might guide us in our examination is, do we have a genuine connection with Jesus? And if not, are we willing to go to that place of deep vulnerability and weakness in order to connect? Are we willing to go to uh, a, a genuine, sincere place of repentance? Or are we okay settling for disconnection so we can avoid confronting the truth about who we are? Uh, Yeah, I wasn't going to mention this, but it's a video I saw this week, so let me, let me just actually talk about it, and then we'll, we'll get into the time of communion. Uh, <coughs> you know, I saw this video this week. Um, I think it was like on NBC News Asian America, and uh, it was created by, I think it's called the Jubilee Project, which I think was like a former member of Good News, right? Jubilee Project, yeah. So uh, they created this video. I don't know how many of you saw it, but basically it's like... Uh, Asian parents and children, and they just have them stare at each other, right, a parent and a child, for four minutes, and they, they record them, right, so in silence, and you can tell they feel extremely awkward. Who, who does that, right, stare at somebody for four minutes in complete silence, let alone, like, your parent or your child, uh, and as they do, uh, like, time goes by, and then you can kind of see their eyes as they're looking at each other, and their eyes begin to tear, right? And then they start to cry. And you're kind of wondering, like, like what, are, what are they thinking of? Like, why are they getting so emotional just staring at one another? And afterwards, like, they interview both the parent and the child. And, you know, there's, like, all these thoughts that they had. And, like, one parent is like, uh, you know, I wish I was able to do so much more for my daughter. Or uh, one of the, the sons was like, I was just thinking about all of the sacrifices my mom made. And that, like, made them really emotional. What that got me to think is, Silence is very valuable, and I don't know how much silence we have in our lives. Uh, I don't know if we even have, like, four minutes of silence in our lives. 
because of like technology and phones and I don't know how maybe we're uncomfortable with silence but I think silence is like very beneficial um, especially when it comes to our relationship with God and if I guess we were to make an analogy and maybe do that with God and just spend like a prolonged period of silence I do wonder what kind of thoughts would come to our mind and I suspect maybe one of the reasons why we don't get to a place of genuine repentance uh, it may be none of the reasons I stated it might just be we just don't sit long enough to really think about it right and so before we partake in communion uh, I don't know if that's rep uh, we can replicate that here uh, but we'll try and so what I want to do is I'll time it four minutes okay uh, let's just sit in four minutes of silence and reflect on God and um, after a period of time, uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll pray for us. Actually, maybe, um, maybe I'll, I'll call the worship team up. Maybe we could sing a song, and then, uh, and then we'll have communion together. So let's just spend some time in silence and think about the Lord.
Lord, we Sometimes we can be so uncomfortable um, with ourselves. Uh, we think about, you know, a lot of the junk uh, within our own hearts, a lot of pains that we hold on to, uh, a lot of fears that we hold on to, uh, a lot of, you know, desires that we shouldn't desire or we desire too much that we hold on to. And we think about you and we think about uh, how good you are and your beauty and your holiness. Uh, we think about how gracious you are and how merciful you are. We think about the death of our Lord Jesus and the love that he showed. Uh, that Jesus would go to die on a cross, sacrifice um, his life, and so much more beyond what we could imagine. on account of our sin. And we are uh, so amazed. And you give us this wonderful gift of repentance to, to know you, not through our strength, but to know you through our weakness. You call us to come to you that way. Uh, not because you want us to feel weak, um, but because we are weak not because you want to condemn us, but the very opposite, because you want us to feel joy and power and delight and peace and security. And so, God, we, um, we want to be a people who can, you know, um, whether it requires deep examination or whether it just kind of requires just being truthful, we want to be a people who are truthful and can live in our um, uh, in a place of exposure so that we can come to you in that being exposed. Uh, we don't want to be like Adam and we don't want to hide from you, but we want to come to you as we are uh, with open hands, longing to receive uh, what you have to offer to us. In Jesus' name we pray.